I'm Raul Guerrero, and welcome, my dystopians, to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the early morning of January 30th, 1966, at the Sierra Provincial Penitentiary, north of Bromelia City. Maya was fast asleep in her one-person cell. She looked decades younger and had no signs of black lung disease. Hollow banging door knocks slowly but surely wiggled Maya awake, tensing her ready for yet another day of the guards' manhandling. A guard informed her that then-president Gabino Palacio Sr. commuted her sentence to time served. Her timid demeanor concealed how rejoiced she was about being released. That elation underscored how surprised Maya was that Gabino accepted her request. She did not expect him to even consider it, much less sign it into effect. That was when Maya realized what she promised to do in exchange for that commutation. What that promise entailed strung her higher than the timid girl surrounded by much older men. Capitol policemen escorted his limo out of the presidential chateau as nearby Bromelians watched on like groupies beholding their idol. In the limo, Gabino Sr. sat quietly with his sons, Gabino Jr., Roy Sr., and Sinclair. Also with them was a film crew hired by the Bromelian Sunlighter to capture Maya's every word on camera. Gabino Sr. was looking forward to the interview he was about to have with Maya. He felt that allowing Maya to speak her piece on her own terms would be an excellent first step for his mission to give Bromelian society the reformation it desperately needed. After having six leaders who corrupted his nation for their own selfish aims. Gabino Jr. found the very idea of allowing Maya to be interviewed her way offensive. But chose to go anyway only because he loved his dad. He really did not want to be a sympathizer for a woman as vile as her. Gabino made his dad know that he was going to address her like a hardened criminal and not a broken child. Like him, Roy Sr. wasn't too hot about speaking with Maya either. Having studied at length about her activities during her young life, despite that, his mind was open enough to be willing to hear her side of the story. It was Roy's view that the rule of law should be respected even if it prematurely releases a person with Maya's kind of history. Unlike his brothers, Sinclair was as excited to see Maya as his father was, yet he didn't have reform or empathy anywhere in his brain. The picture he saw of her turned his intrigued stare into a nefarious ogle. Sinclair perceived Maya as being powerless and desperate, someone who'd fit the mold of his ideal woman perfectly. The Palacios men and their crew arrived at the prison and walked into its mess hall, showered by the guards' salutations and payments of respect. 
After the men took their seats, their crew wasted no time setting up for the interview. As that was happening, Maya was taken out of her cell in handcuffs and shackles. Her walk through the high security block was met with bellicose fury from the other inmates. The Palacios men had a few minutes to think their thoughts and questions over. Ready to express their feelings out loud, they heard and watched a pack of guards escort Maya all the way to her seat at the focus of the film crew's set. The big camera staring her down reminded her muscles and nerves of the cold showers her guards made her take. Maya's shivers disgusted Gabino Jr. into telling her that she hadn't fooled him for a second, adding that a hag like her deserved no sympathy. His father's appalled scream of his name annoyed him into standing by every word he said. Maya was about to stand up, get in his face, and cuss him out when Roy told him to shut his trap. Her simmering anger was cooled down by Sinclair's heartfelt apology. That allowed Gabino Sr. to tell Maya that she may begin whenever she's ready. Maya took a moment to get her brain to stop shivering and ask God to give her strength. Her shivers and timidness now gone, Maya sternly told the camera crew to start filming. Born and raised in Olivaldea, Pais del Carbon, she spent much of her time confined within its valleyed and shaded limits. Its 400 residents knew Maya as well as she knew them, tightening their community's egalitarian knits. Their town had a direct democracy in place where its residents were the government. And the resulted brood was a hamlet that was the only world its residents knew, having long been able to societally fend for itself. Despite its seclusion, Maya rarely felt lonely roaming all over its five square miles. But at the start of 1952, Olivaldea changed forever when a handsome man came to town with his equally sexy female admirers, Alexis Jr. He and his ladies stuck out to the locals like sore thumbs almost immediately. Their squeaky clean skin, eloquent hair, angelic facial features, and polished dress gleamed to the bright sunny sky above. Maya joined the other locals in being unsure of what to make of their cherubic-looking visitors. She had been a war orphan since her parents fought and died during World War II, fighting for their nation's freedom and the liberties they cherished so dearly. Maya was one of twelve such children in the village, and to their great fortune, they were treated no worse or better than the other kids in town by the couple who adopted them. They tried breaking the ice by offering the locals long lines of freshly caught pouch rats, nuisances that the hamlet had long condemned to death and consumption for their persistent tendencies to destroy and sicken crops. Though the locals still weren't ready to let their visitors step foot into town, 
they no longer felt the need to be suspicious. That doubt pushed Hiomata to step forward and show her refined, gritty face to them. She was one of only 12 locals to leave town for pastures beyond since 1857 when Olivaldea came to be. There was never much issue with her leaving due to her town's common belief that once an Olivaldean, always an Olivaldean. Hiomata explained that Alexis came to establish a twin-town relationship between Olivaldea and Alexi Fossa, the tiny village in La Costa del Norte where he and his women came from. Alexi Fossa was a village deep in a pit-like valley akin to the ones that would house the settlements Roy Sr. and Jr. set up many years later. Her kind-hearted tone solaced the other residents to take her word, feeling that she wouldn't dare try to deceive them, a comfort they most certainly would not have come within miles of had Alexis been the explainer. Despite Hiomada's step forward, he was rather offended that she'd assert herself as a person with authority. But for the sake of the mission, Alexis made the conscious decision to shut up about the offense he took, at least until he's able to punish her when the time was right. That decision only slightly soothed the raw razor burns, stinging his amour propre. At noontime, the Olivaldeans gave their Alexei Fosen guests a tour through their towns, cottage homes, church house, K-12 school, crop fields, animal farms, town hall, and public square. Their guests were reminded of how self-sufficiently they ran their little community, albeit in a colder and more frost-susceptible environment. The walk through town endeared the two parties to each other, bringing them to giddy laughter, kindly hugs, flattering remarks, and a newfound mutual respect. It also in-armored Maya to Hiomata, gaily taking them by the hand to the art room. Hiomata romantically sketched and colored on a canvas of considerable size, smiling with joy watching Maya be in her artistic and emotive zone. They proudly declared their drawings as finished at the same time, briefly laughing over that cute coincidence. Maya presented to Hiomata her drawing of herself as a little wolf princess, with her four carnivorous cubs sitting by her side resolutely. Her drawing was in a dimly lit burrow that had features more consistent with an abandoned tool shed than a wolf hole. Intrigued by Maya's drawing, Hiomata wanted to know where she got the idea to make a royal wolf tamer out of herself. Maya talked about having four pet huskies that shared all the physical characteristics of their feral ancestors. Named Milburn, Merlin, Maxwell, and Monroe, they were the little brothers that she was never able to have in human form. Moving on, Hiomada showed Maya her low-angled drawing of herself standing barefoot in a flower dress, knee-deep in a dense patch of blue lavenders. A cliff-like hill loomed over and before her in the patch. Humble farm sitting charmingly in the distance. That made Maya curious to learn the meaning that lay under what she drew. 
Hiyomada softly spoke of her childhood at the Sapphire Flower Farm in Meseta del Cielo. Also a tight-knit commune, the farm's residents spared no blood, sweat, or teardrop in growing fragrant mints that they sold either as flowers, processed oils, or cut-up tea herbs. As Maya and Hiyomada continued their bonding, an utterly odious event was beginning to take shape at Fort Fornton, a military base 17 miles to their southwest. In an outdoor raquetball court, Mara and Marosar Jr., Irian Servine, Donato Yamas, Javiera Diola, and Cretan Iniesta waited silently. Fresh from their showers, their leather face masks understated the fealty that was almost as far along in the aging process as their near Quinquagenarian bodies were. Their prior adventures and the one they're about to undertake gave them every reason to live their lives with one accord. The winds whistling and flapping their military camos focused their thoughts on the photos they took together as proud yellow crossers. Mara posed with a machine gun as her face ebulliently grinned at its muzzle. Maro's pose with his weapons crouched him down and austered his frown. The pose Irian made kneeled and had her wholesomely cuddling her tall gun like a large puppy. Donato's pose with his weapon stood trigger happily and smirked self-congratulatorily. The pose Cretan assumed flexed his muscles and had the camera at gunpoint. And Javieda's pose stuck her tongue out and pointed her weapons at the camera like pistols. Those six were taken into a small room to listen to a recording by Gregorio Sr. that briefed them on their mission to contain the Marxist threat Olivaldea posed to his presidency. His elite associates told him that the village was a political and militant hotbed for working-class radicalism, an ideology he deemed unbromelian and responsible for bringing down the curtains on the four horsemen. The Olivaldea mission was the latest link in Gregorio's serial effort to make his enemies go away, an endeavor he was determined to keep out of the public eye for him, it was personal in view of the fact that Alexis Saviola Sr. was almost certainly going to be his liberal opponent in that year's election. Unlike the appealers before him, Alexis Sr. spoke with an aggression nastier than a cornered raccoon with its babies. His truculent tone resonated with voters who were sick and tired of Gregorio being president. Their furrow fatigue emanated from the major political and economic gambles he made and lost. That was to say nothing of the mortal danger Gregorio and his cronies faced should Alexis be president. Their left-wing rival was not known for playing the game of politics, letting things go, or blindly looking forward. Alexis was a man who believed in seeing to it that past wrongdoings didn't go unpunished, hence the unease that scurried Gregorio into adding links such as the one that's about to come charging 
into a Livaldea. In the burrow drawn earlier, Maya took Hiomata down inside to meet her huskies. The four dogs met her friend's entry with a readiness to viciously defend their owner by any means necessary. Keeping calm, Hiomata offered them hunks of dried steaks, quelling their impulses to attack. The dogs didn't hesitate to ravenously wolf down the beef cuts, chomping away the distrust that almost badly hurt Hiomata, or worse. When they finished, she vigorously rubbed their heads, necks, backs, and front legs, which they hyperactively enjoyed. Hiomata assertively instructed the dogs to sit, lie down, and roll over, commands that jolted them into scowling at her with widened eyes. Seeing how offended her pets were, Maya commanded them to stand down, and so they did with majestic grace. She told Hiyamada that her dogs were more fearful of her than the other way around, adding that it'll be some time before they could fully trust her. That being said, Maya was happy to see that her pets weren't hostile to her friend like before, feeling that the five of them have made some noteworthy progress. As dusk dimmed to night, the whole village became one massive, festive cookout. Rat tenderloins cooked in broths of fragrant and flavorful herbs and spices. The guitarists playing tickled Hiomata into asking Maya how she liked the instrumentals. Her question handed her a sigh and long face immersed in an ocean of bother and bitterness. When asked if she was okay, Maya didn't hold back in calling Hiomata out for leaving her without warning two years ago. She wasn't aware of her departure until she was told about it by Arumi one full week after the fact. Hurt by Maya's scorn, Hiomata was going to tell her exactly why she left so suddenly. But then, Alexis Jr. purposely cleared his throat to get her attention, insisting that they be alone in the barn and talk a little. Hiomata bit her lower lip as her heart rate revved into the red, fidgeting Maya with disquiet over what he was going to do to her friend. Alexis saw the anxiety shaking her and proceeded to give her his promise that he had no intention of harming her to any degree. He called up Maya's roomies and told them to joyously have fun with her while he and Hiomata took care of business. Her friend wanted to scream BS at his promise but was too trembly to say a word. The minute Alexis and Hiomata entered the barn, he grabbed her by the chest and pinned her against the wall the way a school bully would. Alexis contemned a weakly resisting Hiomata for upstaging him during their initial dialogue with the villagers. She scoffed at his accusation, spelling out to him that a man of his character would have gotten the colony sent packing had she not stepped in. Hiomata barked at Alexis to get over himself for one second and recognize how much she and the other ladies have helped him make his revolution the covert powerhouse that it's become. That smilingly incensed Alexis into throwing her flat 
onto the semi-dry mud below. The dirt splatted like a dense pie all over Hiyomada, taking her mental pain to the extreme. Alexis violently took hold of her by the hair and angrily yet quietly explained to her that he was the one and only boss of the group and that she was nothing more than a subordinate who swore to do the work and let him take the glory. He refreshed her on what Gregorio had done to that farm she knew and loved. That helped Hiomada remember why she returned to Olivaldea under Alexis's direction, sounding the alarm that her place of birth could suffer the same fate. Those faces she saw pounce on the farm had not waned from her memory, one sand grain of a bit. Their callous looks were generous doses of the purest ether to her pain, calming Alexis into slackening his grip so that she's able to get up in her roughed-up dirtiness. The faithfulness firming her stare washed away his hard feelings. Alexis imparted to Hiomada that he will give her the revenge she wants if she does what he expects of her. Although what he wanted wasn't a problem for her, the pain it brought her hurt so much that she may as well have taken issue with his leadership from its first word. But come happiness or anger, Hiomada would be damned if she lost face with the only person who could avenge the atrocity that irreparably damaged her psyche. But she didn't have to go look for the people responsible, as many of them, including the six yellow crossers from the military base, amassed like a thin but solid ring hiding in the brush atop the valley, cradling the village. They watched the villagers eat and have fun with lusts soaking in blood, holding their impulses to attack real tight. The scenario before them wasn't anything unlike the others that preceded it. None of the residents looked hardened, appeared to be armed, or were part of any civil force. To them, it was a carbon copy of the flower farm attack they pulled off with flying colors. With that prejudgment, Internalized, the six quietly and stealthily rose up the brush and readied their guns just outside of the town's visibility. Back at the cookout, Alexis and Hiomata walked back like their fight never took place. They were asked by her what they were talking about in the barn. Their responses went along the lines of needing to discuss some very personal stuff. That weirded Maya out a bit but it wasn't enough to really arouse in her any suspicion. Suddenly, Alexis, Hiomata, and the other ladies saw what looked like army boots in the bushes and next to the trees. There and then, they unzipped the big bags they'd been carrying around, threw their machine guns out, and fired rapidly into the brush. That precipitous gunfire panicked the residents into running for shelter and struck the yellow crossers at volts higher than a lightning strike. Within the panic caused by that engagement, Maya ran triple quick into the burrow and huddled with her huskies, cuddling with their eyes closed as gunshots fired and hit all around them. Their fears were the unpleasant emotions driving her fellow 
Oli Valdeans into sheltering in place at the nearest substantial enclosure they could physically run into. Despite the sudden gunfire, not one resident suffered injuries graver than minor cuts and bruises. But their worst wounds were to their hearts, which shattered like crystal glass cups. The locals were genuine in their belief that their guests came in peace. They were particularly dismayed that one of their own would willingly participate in the siege. Yet, the locals did not know why their guests opened fire, but were yearning for that answer. Outside their shelters, the battle between Alexis and Mara's forces dragged on. Alexis and his ladies found protection in back of the buildings where the locals were in. They endured no losses, and only a few sustained minor bullet wounds, but their Yellow Cross adversaries were much less fortunate. The body count among Mara's forces was numerous and climbing by the minute, falling through their offense at sixes and sevens. Her friends' nerves racked a notch harder with each failing layer of the attack's ring. Every layer's collapse brought Alexis's forces one step closer to getting Mara, Maro, Irian, Donato, Javiera, and Cretan. There was no way on earth that those six would become souvenirs for the Marxists to wave around like trophies. They now faced the choice of either staying at the risk of being butchered limb from limb or retreating with their lives but at the expense of their usefulness to Gregorio. Those six really did not want to retreat because of how good Gregorio had been to them. He gave them authoritative work, fructuous pay, and quality housing when no one else would. The work, pay, and housing were all debts those six felt obligated to pay off by shooting and killing in his name. Their reluctance to flee was also driven by Gregorio's warning that bad things would happen to those who fail or abort the missions he assigned them. They've read and overheard stories of yellow crossers disappearing after falling out of his good graces. Mara and her friends were unwilling to find themselves be six more statistics. Then they looked back on their quarter century of adventure settling their nerves one fiber at a time. The contents of that past tickled them like feathers waving along a child's cheek and washed their fear of Gregorio away like dirty clothes in the washer. Those memories Mara and her friends cherished made their decision to desert the mission an easy one that was survivable. But as they retreated, their masks all broke off giving Alexis and Hiomata looks of their faces that were unambiguous. Mara and her friends headed for the hills without even knowing that they just laid their identities bare. Maya and her huskies stayed hunkered as the battle carried over into the small hours. She shivered in fear, mentally on her knees, begging for God to let her live. Like her brethren and sisterin, Maya wanted the shooting to stop more than anything. They would have to wait until three hours after dawn for the fighting to dissipate. When it did, 
the calm that bore down on them was as heavy as the combat it followed. For 15 minutes, not a human voice from outside was heard. That quiet granted the Olivaldeans the comfort to step outside and right into the sights of Hiomara. She said good morning to her fellow Olivaldeans, taking their collective shock to a level that was more than extreme. Maya bombarded her with questions of what was wrong with her and what she was shooting up the valley so much for. Hiomada's reason manifested in the yellow crossers her fellow ladies captured. The horned crosses on their jackets were unmistakable to the villagers. What they represented was one of the few things outside of town the Olivaldeans knew well. The villagers came upon countless drabbles on the slopes that surrounded their town. Those short works explicitly detailed horrors of an unbelievable magnitude. Not one of the works mentioned Gregorio or the Yellow Cross by name, but they all had horned crosses penned on them. It came as a shock to the villagers that their nation's troops would wear such crosses on their sleeves. In any event, the scenario before them did not make any sense, but Alexis came to puzzle it all together. He began by telling the villagers that the bullets he and his ladies suddenly shot out were to repel a threat that wanted to wipe their village off the map. Hiomara added that it was the subject of all the works that sprinkled the slopes. Before anyone asked, she knew the Yellow Crossers were hostile because of their past massacres. For instance, the attack Hiomara survived was why she returned to Olivaldea. She wanted to save her brothers and sisters from the fate her friends over at the now former farm were shot into. Hiomara thought it was worth noting that half a dozen of the troops involved were among the captured. The troops she noted shook their heads with the resentfulness of an elephant about to charge. Alexis stated that while the attack on the farm was one of the saddest, it was by no means the only one Gregorio approved of. Wanting to rip out any roots of dissent before they could grow out of the ground. As a group, the attacks were a part of an effort called Operation Rootout, where government-backed militias were to massacre villages he suspected of plotting attacks against him. The way Gregorio hid his operation's existence was by having those involved memorize and practice their attacks ad nauseum. Then his secretaries would destroy and disavow all evidence and knowledge of the attacks. Be that as it may, Alexis had moles in Gregorio's government who sent him copies of each mission carried out. He explained that Olivaldea was one of the targets Gregorio had in mind because he thought that its people were harboring Soviet-backed assassins, three Olivaldeans whom the village had not heard a peep or seen a penstroke from in 18 years. The villagers were utterly surprised that Gregorio would suspect them of all people of plotting to take his power away. Since their founding, they mostly kept their cares and concerns local, not paying attention to fights they had no dogs in. Unlike many other villages, they were neither in the hands of the UBA 
or those of the BPP. The villagers were made bitter by how Gregorio would come for them knowing that they were nonpartisanism in bodily form. Even presidents like the Four Horsemen left them be, so they had a hard time grasping why he would view a town like theirs as a threat. Alexis yelled at the villagers for having the audacity to think that Gregorio or anyone in his ilk was going to leave them alone. He called them a Nazi who had no concept of neutrality, adding that the era of not having to pick a side has passed. Alexis told the villagers that they could either join him and thrive or turn him down and be held prisoner. The captured troops faced the darker choice of hard labor or firing squad. To the villagers, Gregorio's attempt on their lives was a betrayal beyond reproach. The troops were certain that he would dispose of them the second they returned to him. What Alexis offered was protection for the villagers and survival for the troops. With all that in mind, the villagers joined Alexis and the troops chose labor. Alexis instructed the villagers to stay where they were and the troops to walk up the valley with his ladies. Hiyomata asked him if she could stay with Maya, a request he calmly accepted. The peaceful smile Maya got from her had her shaking in her boots like a girl laying her eyes on a monster that wanted to befriend her. The ladies uncuffed the troops and utilized the threat of their guns to make them dig up deep holes near the slopes with their bare hands. They forced them to stuff their guns down dead in those pits and bury them, curling the hairs of the villagers' emotions such that the curls swirled into blackish blue knots. A couple villagers demanded that Alexis tell them who he and his ladies really were. And what they wanted. He identified himself as the King Bee of the Bromelian People's Colony, and that his ladies were his drones, and that they, their people, and the troops would soon be his workers, red wasps who will plunge their yellow jacket enemies six feet under. The mental scars being inflicted on the adults were the ones marking up their youth. For Maya, the burials coupled with Hiomata's transformation, left her naivete shattered. Back in the interview, Maya buried her head in her palms, whimpered her breathing, and wiped the tears off her pinkened eyes and cheeks. Her story thus far already left Gabino Sr. heartbroken, made Roy Sr. and Sinclair sympathetic, and even got Gabino Jr. not to say anything. Maya requested that the film crew quit recording and give her a few minutes. Gabino Sr. offered her handkerchiefs and soda pop to help her regain her composure, telling her to take all the time she needs. The handkerchiefs soothed her sadness like aloe on a bleeding scrape, while the soda wolfed down her mouth and onto her stomach. The comet somewhat brought her back to was horned in on by the door's opening echo. Maya and the men looked toward it and saw an older, stink-eyed Hiomata standing at the doorway. Her short hair, glasses, and librarian dress were quite a departure from the flowery woman in Maya's story.
And speaking of her, the curl she twisted into at the story's end turned the waters of her delicate emotions to ice. But Maya wasn't alone in her freeze as the men were also perturbed to see Hiomata again, knowing the bad deeds she couldn't be prosecuted for. That moment was the first in so long where Maya and Hiomata had laid eyes on each other in the flesh. The film crew too were surprised that Hiomata would show her face anywhere, let alone to the President of the Republic of Brumelia. Her presence hinted at the possibility that Maya's interview was about to take a drastic turn. As for the story itself, its next chapters would tell all about what became of Gregorio, Alexis, and their respective sides. And as fate would have it, they would subject the Bromelian identity to changes that would have consequences decades down the line. And that was a naivete shattered. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.